electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Another rocket company in turbulent territory as Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Orbit pauses operations and furloughs staff, seeking a funding lifeline amid a cash crunch. It speaks to a broader dynamic, a crowded launch market under pressure after a world once awash in capital now adjusts to tight monetary policy. It's a dynamic investors in the sector have been watching closely. Right now, we're currently tracking over 160 private launch companies around the world. So these are startups who are trying to emulate Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and they all have their own little original spin on their their rocket engines or their business model. Um, But there's not room in the market for 160 launch companies to exist. Even if 100,000 satellites are launched in the next seven to 10 years, uh, we believe 10 to 15 companies can fulfill that demand. In this episode, Space Fund co-founder and managing partner Megan Crawford breaks down the state of space investing and where her venture capital firm is putting money to work. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. So um, we're still pretty young, pretty early stage for a venture capital firm. We, I like to say we're a startup ourselves. Uh, we founded the firm in 2018, but didn't really get started until 2019. It took us a while to get set up. And um, we have two funds, uh, Space Fund 1 and Space Fund 2. We're really great at naming these things. And um, they, uh, we have 19 companies that we're invested in across the two funds. So we have a pretty diverse portfolio. I like to say we only invest above the Carmen line. So that's 62 miles or 100 kilometers up. So we don't do drones or electric airplanes. We're not aerospace. We're very specifically space focused. And we invest across many of the subsectors in the industry. Um, you know, everything from in-space transportation to communications, uh, to supply chain. And so um, we're, we've built really a very diverse and, and interesting portfolio. Let's talk a little bit about some of those investments. I'm, I'm looking here. It looks like you're invested in everything from Axiom Space to SpaceX to, um, I mean, you have a whole bunch made in space, uh, Radian. Um, I guess I guess talk to me a little bit about some of the, I realize it's like probably picking a child, but like some of the investments you're most excited about right now. No, that's exactly correct. I like to always say, um, just like any good mom, I will not tell you that I have a favorite child. (laughs) But, um, you know, we do have some of the big names, like you mentioned, Axiom and and, and SpaceX and Space Perspective and Radian. Um, And some of the ones that we're really excited about are the ones that are maybe a little less sexy and a little less well-known. Everything from Novospace, which is uh, an Argentinian-founded company that's creating radiation-hardened computer chips as one of these all-important components for these satellites that are being launched. Um, Cosmic Shielding has created a completely new material based on NASA science to shield these satellites from that harsh environment in space. A company called SpaceForge out of Wales in the UK is manufacturing computer chips, silicon wafers for computer chips in space using the natural environment of space, the the low temperatures in the vacuum uh, that are required to create those those pieces. 
uh, Orbit Fab has been in the news lately. They're creating fuel depots in space to refuel satellites. And so there's, there's just this huge diversity. Um, one company that I think surprises people a lot that we're invested in is a company called Eden Grow Systems. They're using NASA technology that was developed to grow vegetables on the space station to help individuals, uh, individual households grow their own food. Um, and in the wake of the COVID uh, supply chain issues, that's never been more important to have that food security. Um, most people don't think NASA is in the business of growing food. Um, but the idea is then to send that technology back to space because uh, if you're going to be going to, to Mars and you're on a six month journey, you want some fresh fruits and vegetables on your on your route. So um, so, yeah, just a, a, a big, diverse group of very exciting companies. I'm sure the astronauts that are uh, hanging out in the International Space Station for six months uh, wouldn't mind some some fresh fruits and veggies as well. I know there's been some experiments there, too. Um, it's uh, it, it's very cool. So how do you. How do you look for companies? How do you assess companies? Um, and I, I guess just how, how do you think about investing in, in some of these newer players? So we have developed what we call our investment sectors of interest. Now, we, we're not exclusively in those sectors, but those are the sectors where we're seeking out companies. And so this is um, what we call space transportation. Uh, we try to stay away from launch. Launch is uh, obviously, we've got our SpaceX investment already in, in that category. But what happens after launch? How do you move around in space? And as humanity is moving further and further out into space, this becomes um, a more important problem to be solved. We're looking at in-space communications. This is a startling statistic that I was shocked by when I first realized how true it was. Uh, right now, the satellites that are orbiting Earth, most of them are collecting data about Earth. Less than 1% of that data makes its way back down to Earth to be analyzed. And this is for a variety of reasons, but there's a what? lot of problem. Yeah, less than 1%. This has to do with onboard computing and storage power aboard the satellite. This has to do with downlink capability. Um, and, and so there's just a, a wide variety of, of issues causing that bottleneck. And these are, you know, when you, when you see issues like this, we look at them as opportunities. These are problems to be solved where there's a lot of uh, capital available for the people who can solve these problems properly. We also are interested in human factors. So this is keeping humans alive and healthy in space, right? Going back to our discussion about fresh fruits and vegetables, especially as people are gonna be spending more and more time in space, that, that health factor, whether it's mental health or physical health becomes very important. And then the in-space supply chain. We just talked about OrbitFab building those fuel depots in space. Uh, we're looking forward to a future where the ingredients for that fuel, hydrogen and oxygen uh, in most cases, so water, is being mined on the moon or asteroids and delivered to these low Earth orbit gas stations so that you're not having to launch all of that, all of that mass to orbit to refuel these spacecraft. We're also very interested in energy, in-space energy capture, creation, and storage. And so this is everything from better solar panels to better batteries to eventually a future where space-based solar power could power our entire planet uh, without any ecological consequences on Earth. So there's these are the categories that we're really interested in. And once we find a company that we think is a good fit for kind of our bigger picture vision of where the space economy is going, we then take a quick look at what we call tech team and timing. So do they have technology that's valuable, that's defensible, 
um, that works, right? My a friend of mine who works at DARPA likes to always say, if it purports to break one law of physics, fine. If it says it breaks two laws of physics, <laughs> now we're skeptical, right? So does the technology actually work? And then um, the team, is this the right team to bring this technology to market? And, and then timing, is it the right time in the market for this technology? And so that's the kind of basic hurdle that a company has to pass to get into our due diligence process. The timing piece of it I'm curious about because we know it's long lead times and a lot of investment when it comes to space. Um, so, how do you, so how do you think about that in terms of return on your investment? So this is something that was a real sticking point when we were first setting up the firm. I mentioned we founded the firm in 18 and didn't get started till 2019. We spent that year doing all of the research to prove that space venture capital actually had a business case that closed because most venture capital firms invest on a seven to 10 year time frame, And the general thought process was that, you know, space takes too long to develop mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't fit within that traditional VC timeframe. We found that not to be true. We did some research and cataloged all of the space startup exits over the last 50 years. And the average age at exit was seven years. So it fits huh. perfectly within that venture capital timeline. Obviously, there's there's um, you know examples uh, that that run the gamut, uh, you know, much much longer time frame and much shorter time frame. But that average age was seven years. And so one of the things that we're seeing this amazing sea change that's happened in the industry over the last decade or so is that the startup mentality, the move fast and break things attitude of Silicon Valley has finally made it to the space industry. This is not your Lockheed Martin or Boeing program cost plus government contract that's loaded <laughs> and, and takes, you know, takes 10 times as long as it's supposed to. These are real entrepreneurs who are innovating quickly uh, and, and making real progress in a way that we've never seen before in the space industry. Um, I, I feel like I ask this question often, regularly. I'm going to ask it to you as well because I've been—I mean, I've been covering the sector for a while. I've been having these conversations for a while. I, are we finally at a moment? Are we finally at a tipping point in terms of the realization of this commercially-based space economy? Because um, we've been talking about it for a long time. Is it actually here? Is it happening? It finally is. It finally is. And when I first started hanging around this industry uh, in 2008, Elon hadn't even had a successful launch yet. And so it was this big promise and these big dreams of this idea of entrepreneurial space. Well, it, it's finally here. In 2009, I founded something called the New Space Business Plan Competition, which, as the name implies, is a business plan competition for space startups. And at that time, there were only a handful of, of space startups um, to the point where I knew most of them personally. Uh, eventually, it got to the point where I couldn't remember them all. I had to start a database, and there were about 600 companies in that in about 2011. Um, space Fund is now tracking well over 3,000 space startups around the world. And those are just the ones we know of. Think about how many more there are that we haven't encountered yet or that uh, are still in stealth, right? And so... Here's another important statistic that I think is really valuable. Right now, there's about 6,000 satellites orbiting the Earth. We expect 100,000 satellites to launch within that seven to 10 year investment window that we look at as venture capitalists. So that's a huge change from 6,000 satellites to 100,000 satellites. And that, again, creates opportunity. 
what are the products and services that all 100,000 of those satellites are going to need? And the opportunity for new business ideas and new solutions just is just growing exponentially right now. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of these debates on CNBC about, you know, hard landing, soft landing, no landing. Basically, is a recession coming or not? Is, a, is the macroeconomic slowdown upon us in a, in a real and meaningful way yet or not? Um, meantime, you do have more government funding, at least here in the U.S., but in other places, too, going towards this sector. So how do you think about that in terms of the current macro environment, given the fact that capital is, at least we see it in the public markets, capital is um, not quite as plentiful as it was, but you do have this government funding that is, you know, helping to propel the sector as well. So we did some research around this as well, um, because as a venture capitalist uh, with a background in finance, I'm all about the numbers and the spreadsheets, right? I, I like to I like to know what I'm talking about from a numbers perspective. And there turns out there is no correlation between the space industry and the wider global markets. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The most important of which being that the world's largest space customer is the U.S. government to the tune of somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. It's hard to really nail down what that number is. But, but So let's say it's 20 percent of the global space economy is dollars coming from the U.S. government. The U.S. government tends to spend more money on uh, on defense during a down market. So that provides the industry a really nice cushion against market volatility. Uh, but what we have seen is these larger kind of macroeconomic trends, um, specifically the space companies, the whole group of them that, that went public via SPACs over the last couple of years. Some of those companies, most of them, in fact, are down 50% or more um, due to the current economic conditions. And while we think those will bounce back and that those numbers aren't necessarily representative of, of those companies and, and where they're uh, where they're going, the great thing for us as early stage investors is that that macroeconomic climate has driven valuations down across the board, both public and private markets. And so as, a, as an early stage VC investor, you know, the number one rule of investing is buy low, sell high, right? So, so we're actually kind of excited about those, what we think are more realistic valuations for those early stage companies uh, that are allowing us to make more investments and and, and really expand our, our portfolio and, and further diversify. So is a recession going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Um, that's that's probably outside my area of expertise, but we are still very bullish, especially on those early stage space investments where we see a ton of value being created right now. It's, uh, it's interesting too, because you're starting to your point and this whole idea of, you know, buy low, sell high, you're, you're starting to see it drum up in, in some M&A activity as well, um, whether it's, you know, reports that maybe ULA could be on the sale block or Max are being, you know, taken private through private equity um, or, or some of the other things that seem to be afoot a right now. I wonder if you think or if you've seen even through your own funds um, more investors, more folks that maybe were not paying attention to space. Uh, including institutional money that was not even paying attention to space a couple years ago, now come to the sector. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously venture capitalists, we have investors ourselves. And so over time, we've seen a, a real change in the kind of traditional financial community's understanding of space. It used to just be, um, well, Elon's got 
a rocket company and Jeff Bezos has a rocket company, so I want a rocket company, right? Uh, but we're seeing the level of sophistication of those institutional investors really increase as this industry becomes impossible to ignore because of all the value being created here. And we are expecting quite a bit of consolidation over the next couple of years because that's, that's what you see in a growing sector, number one. But uh, here's a great example. Right now, we're currently tracking over 160 private launch companies around the world. So these are startups who are trying to emulate Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and they all have their own little original spin on their, their rocket engines or their business model. Um, but there's not room in the market for 160 launch companies to exist. Even if 100,000 satellites are launched in the next seven to 10 years, uh, we believe 10 to 15 companies can fulfill that demand. So we are going to see a lot of consolidation. A lot of these, these uh, rocket companies are gonna go out of business. Some of them are gonna be um, aqua hired, right? They're gonna be acquired just for their talent. Um, some of the technologies are compatible, some are not. Uh, and some are gonna be, you know, are gonna consolidate an IP portfolio of several different rocket companies. So that's one area that we expect to see a lot of deal activity in, in the next few years. And then there's other sectors of the industry as well where we're starting to see little pieces of the puzzle that are being developed by different companies starting to come together. One really great example of this is one of our portfolio companies, Voyager Space Holdings. And they are creating a competitor to your Boeings and your Lockheeds and your Northrops by consolidating a bunch of interesting startups that have these pieces of the puzzle that you need to compete with, with a Boeing. And they're putting them all under one umbrella and providing the infrastructure to allow those startups to be competitive with the big boys. So we're, we're seeing a lot of private equity interest as well. And so um, we are gonna see some very interesting and, and much more sophisticated deals in the space ecosystem in the next few years. And of course, the question I have, I know Voyager well, um, but I, the question I, I have about this idea of taking on kind of the established stalwarts in in um in space is are are governments paying attention is it going to be is the process going to become easier for some of these new entrants to actually be able to and it seems like nasa seems to be really on the forefront of this but uh in general to be able to you know come in and, and contract with the government so yeah nasa has done a great job of this you know quick shout out to Lori garver and jim bridenstine and all the other folks over at nasa who really helped push that agency forward and, and into the 21st century as far as how they're doing their contracting and the types of companies they're working with. Uh, but we're seeing this across the DOD. And one of the things I think that's been one of the biggest innovations is the creation of Space Force. Think what you will about it politically, uh, but from a space startup perspective, it's probably the best thing that could have ever happened to the industry because Space Force is able to redo the rules. They're able to start fresh with a contracting perspective of looking at the entire marketplace, not just the, the top five aerospace DOD primes that you're used to hearing about. And so we're seeing a ton of capital flowing into the startup economy through SBIRs, through um, OTAs, through TACFIs, STRATFIs, all of these kind of innovative contracting vehicles that have existed in the past, but have never really been used to their full potential. We're seeing both Space Force and Air Force really step up their game on this front um, and have a lot more programs and, uh, and, and funding available for these startups. And, and they're keenly aware 
of what we call in the in the startup world the valley of death that there's funding available at these early stages for R&D and then there's funding available for a finished product to sell into the DOD but what about that that point in the middle where you need that funding to cross the chasm and actually become a successful company they know that venture capital is the right answer for that so we've seen this great outreach from the Department of Defense to the venture capital industry, and they're acting as a co-investor with us right now. And I think that's probably the most efficient way to get this industry really off of its feet. And the DOD has been a wonderful partner to us, Every, everybody from the Defense Innovation Unit to DARPA, to Air Force Research Lab, Space Force, Air Force, you know, I could sit here all day naming uh, acronyms, but um, they, they, there has been an absolutely massive push to do what America does best and innovate. Um, I love hearing that. Uh, and yes, there's like acronyms for days. I can yeah. threaten to write a book. Yeah. Just like just almost an like a, yeah, like Cliff's Notes on the acronyms. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. How'd you get involved in space? How did you end up a VC uh, for a an early an early stage uh, fund, early stage startup fund? So um, I've been in the industry since I was in grad school. I was doing my MBA and I had an amazing career counselor who inspired me to really follow my dreams. And I got an internship at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, working in their technology transfer office. And that's when I really cut to kind of uh, take a look under the hood, if you will, and, and see that there were companies that were commercializing this NASA technology. And it just kind of set me set me spinning down uh, down the rabbit hole of all the amazing things that were going on. I originally got involved as a student volunteer for an organization called the Space Frontier Foundation, uh, which was really kind of leading the charge, both from a policy perspective, changing the rules so the startups could play with the big boys, um, and all the way to uh, helping the startups develop their business plans and and um, you know, work with them to, to really build profitable businesses. And so that was kind of my foot in the door. Um, I would say to any, any students out there or young professionals who are interested in, in um, you know, finding a way into this industry, Space Frontier Foundation has been an amazing resource for so many of us since it was founded in 1988, I believe. And so through there, I was, through that organization, I was able to build a network um, I worked at several space startups. I, I was in Silicon Valley with my nose to the grindstone, um, trying to build a, a successful space startup for a number of years. And when we had an exit, which you know was uh, was rare at the time, um, one of my uh, one of my uh, colleagues at uh, at that company, we were sitting around talking about what's the what's the next right thing we can do for the industry. And at the time we were seeing our friends, these brilliant space entrepreneurs, um, getting doors slammed in their faces all the, up and down Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley because the VCs just didn't really understand this market or where it was going. And so we founded Space Fund to be the bridge between the uh, traditional capital markets and the space industry because we knew both of them so well. And I like to say that my dream job didn't exist, so I created it. I love that. Um, it is Women's History Month. I wish we didn't even have to have a month to celebrate women's history. I wish this was, didn't even have to be a conversation. But I'm going to ask you, are there enough women in this industry? How do we get more women into this industry? That's a great question and one that's near and dear to my heart. So my personal goal 
is the permanent human settlement of space. I want to see that happen in my lifetime. And for a true sustaining off-world settlement to exist, you're going to need 51% women for biological reasons, <laughs> among many others, right? And right now, the aerospace industry is only 25% women, and only 11% of the people who have been to space have been women. So how do you get from 11% to 51%? That's a pretty significant jump. And I think there's a lot of programs and a lot of uh, nonprofits and, and a lot of good things going on out there to help get more women into STEM. But one of the things that I would say is that this is a full-blown industry now. You don't necessarily have to be a rocket scientist or an engineer to get a job in the space industry. We need marketing people. We, we, need, we need sales. We need finance. We need anything that you can do that's applicable in some other industry is applicable in the space industry now. Um, and beyond that, I'd say that one of the best things that we can do, the women who are in this industry, is to be vocal, to tell our stories, because young women especially need to see themselves in a role, need to visually see themselves, be able to visualize themselves in a role. And the only way they're going to do that is by seeing the women who are already doing it. Um, and along this line, I started a podcast. I'll do a little plug for myself here. It's called the Mission Eve podcast. It's available anywhere that you consume podcasts. Um, we're hopefully releasing season two this summer. And that's exactly what we're doing is we're interviewing women with all different types of jobs, all different types of backgrounds to let them tell their stories to hopefully inspire more women to join us. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Morgan Brennan. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.